For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. This week, I'm interrupting our Share the Podcast Mic program to return to the interviewer's chair to talk to the woman who inspired Series 5. She is Belinda Duarte, and we're talking racism and reconciliation in Australia. The timing is important because January 26th is coming up, a significant day in this country. Share the Mic is back next week, and your host will be Nina Gabor. She's going to be talking to the economist Jason Hickel, all about post-growth. Fascinating, that. Okay, Belinda is a descendant of the Wachabalak peoples. She is the CEO of Culture is Life, and you're going to hear all about the work that they do. She's also the co-chair of Reconciliation Victoria, and in 2020, she won a scholarship for senior women executives with Indigenous heritage to undertake something called the Vincent Fairfax Fellowship, which is all about ethical leadership. And we're going to talk about that. Fascinating. What else? So much. Her CV is phenomenal. She used to be an athlete, both an amateur and a professional sprinter. She trialled as a heptathlete for the Olympic and Commonwealth Games. She's worked on a load of different projects to empower Aboriginal young people through sport, particularly in football. You can see I'm out of my comfort zone here. I'm like, what is football? <laughs> You're going to hear her mention something called the Corin Gamaji Institute, and we'll share a link. I looked up those words, actually. They're really beautiful. They mean to grow and emerge in the Wurundjeri language. You'll also hear us talk about a documentary called The Australian Dream. Now, I reckon this is, without doubt, the most important Australian film I've ever seen. Certainly the one that stayed with me and moved me the most. It's, it's written by the Indigenous journalist Stan Grant. And it tells the story of the great Australian football player and role model Adam Goods. So he's a sporting hero. He plays Aussie Rules, which is AFL, if you're listening internationally. If you're listening here, I don't even know what that is. Oh, come on, I do. Anyway, he's basically a legend. He was named Australian of the Year in 2014. And he's a beautiful man and an inspirational person. And he's just incredible. But the film details the horrific racist hounding and taunting of goods on the pitch through 2015 by literally hundreds of supporters who did this repeatedly, systematically, over game after game. It's just, ugh, I can't even explain how it makes you feel. If you haven't seen this film, you must, wherever you live. But if you're in Australia, I think it should be required viewing. And I say that because I've been quite surprised by how many people haven't watched it here, including friends of mine. And I think it's, you know what I think, as someone who didn't grow up here, I think it's for the same reasons that we don't make enough headway addressing racism in this country, that there's this kind of, and look, Britain is hardly pristine in this area, so I'm not lecturing you, but I do think there's a kind of collective denial going on here, like, oh no, Australians aren't racist anyway work to do. So if you are here, the film is streaming on ABC iView. So no excuses. And actually, it's just brilliant. Anyway, you need to watch it and tell everyone else to as well. Now, before we get into it, just a note to those who may be triggered by these topics. We do talk about the stolen generation. And while we don't focus on suicide in this discussion, the problem of intentional self-harm among Aboriginal young people is mentioned and it is central to the work that's done by Culture is Life. These are obviously enormous topics and we've only got 40 minutes 
And we're also talking about some beautiful, empowering things from sport to raising strong girls to activism. So, look, I would encourage you to read more, follow and listen to other voices leading discussions on these issues. And, of course, listen to Indigenous voices. As always, there's loads of links in the show notes. So we will share as much as we can on www.thewardrobecrisis.com. I hope you find this episode enlightening and not just in Australia. These issues are globally relevant and never more so than now. Please do share the episode. And remember to hit subscribe if you're listening in Apple Podcasts. Please take a moment to rate and review the show. It really helps us. And thank you, dear listeners, for being here with us for this one. Belinda, welcome to the Wardrobe Crisis podcast. And thank you for making time right before Christmas to record this. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. We met last year virtually through this Instagram initiative called Share the Mic Now Australia, which is based on the American one. But the idea here was for white women to hand over their accounts to Indigenous women to amplify Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander issues. This was like the whole spark behind the Series 5 of the podcast. So first, I just want to thank you. Oh, look, it's thank you. If it's seeded something for you to really open conversations for people to really think differently on a few different areas, I, it did its purpose. That was the whole thing about sharing the mic, really. I, I felt um, very privileged and, um, you know, thank you for leading that. Uh, if more people were generous in the, in the way in which they shared space or allowed First Nations women to stand in places that they don't get the opportunity to would be in a different place. Mm, thank you. Belinda, did you watch much of the other takeovers that happened? Because I saw the other day that former Prime Minister Julia Gillard had handed over her account to Narelda Jacobs, who's a journalist. But mm. who, who did, did you see that? It was pretty cool. Oh, uh, look, and again, amazing. Yeah, extraordinary woman. And I had the blessing of meeting her before she was the Prime Minister. She actually opened the Corrine Gamage Institute well, seeded some of the resources going into the role that I was at at the Richmond Football Club and, and then as the Prime Minister came in and launched the facility. So for her, you know, she's a woman of change, our first female Prime Minister here. And it didn't surprise me that she opened up that gateway. So well done to Julie and all of the women that participated in it, both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal women and globally. It's also about this idea of opening up audiences that aren't traditionally listening to potentially this stuff to new ideas, isn't it? I mean, even if we're just talking about, for example, you coming from a sports background and me coming from a fashion background, it's that kind of cross-pollination, right? Oh, absolutely. And I could talk to anybody that is passionate about influencing change. Initially, I was like, okay, if you had to pick an area that I don't know anything about, it's got to be football. And I said yeah. that to the organizers. And they said, basically, good. That's the point we're trying to shake you up. They wanted us to break out of our comfort, I suppose, not just in terms of race and colonialism, but but everything. I thought that was really interesting. What did you think about the fashion space and engaging in that area? I mean, I've, I, you know, fashion for me is about an expression, an extension of yourself, you know, on any given day, depending on your vibe, on, on how you choose to dress and express who you are, can vary. I mean, I'm a girl that loves a no makeup day and bumming around. And, and then the next minute, I love a dress up with, you know, a little bit of glam in the mix as well. But um, my experiences as a young girl, and the message that if I was to generalise what we were exposed to growing up was some really unrealistic expectations 
being confronted by that when you're a young adolescent trying to grow up and embrace your body and there was a a love-hate relationship with fashion. That said, I wasn't exposed to some of the production issues that the industry has had and and your ethical leadership work um, in the space is definitely something that I want to learn more about so that my behaviours are not continuing to enable stuff that it shouldn't. Wow, we can teach each other. That's actually amazing. I was thinking you teach me, but actually it is a two-way dialogue, isn't it? Yeah, completely, completely, absolutely. Belinda, you've got a, a young daughter. How old is she? She's just turned 12 and finished primary school, so it's been a big year. You know, she is about to go into secondary and and full of tween hormones and, you know, <laughs> just the excitement of um growing up I think but also the anxiety as a young girl I'm starting to see Mm. you know going from the the eldest into the small fish in a big pond. God and fashion can fuel that can't it I I mean just that whole focus on image which I think is so unhelpful especially when you're very young. Yeah totally and you know it's how from an adolescent development perspective what environments do we create for young people to really endorse and support individuality when you were a kid you certainly weren't dominated by fashion because you were so sporty now we've got a lot of other things to talk about but I want to stick on sport for a bit you were the first female executive of the Richmond Football Club in 2012 you were named football woman of the year wow yeah thank you it was um sport for me such a critical anchor in my world as a child really really important in the fabric of my family and the history of my family is a a place a safe place to express for as long as i can remember i loved i loved to run you know my most vivid memory is running and feeling wind through my hair mm. and it sounds really simple but i just loved it as a little kid and Sport's been a thread since the word go. I was involved in a whole range of different sporting activities, little athletics from the ages seven, netball, softball, and, you know, swimming and other sports at school. So it was a space in which I felt, I felt strong, you know. I felt powerful, not powerful in a dominating way, but just powerful in self. You know, it was a real self-expression thing. And for a young girl to feel I could do something and do it well it was important for me and you know growing up in a family that had significant trauma on both sides of my family sport was a place a safe place for all of us to sort of just switch off and I don't mean it's kind of it's just you're running in your own lane Uh, from a track and field perspective it's kind of just about you so I never got off the track feeling worse unless I was injured I always no matter what I went to the track as I'd always leave feeling better and that's where I I really try and affirm and remind people to think about those places you know where do you get lost where do you once you've done it you feel better no matter what and exercise by its very nature makes us all feel you know, just evidence from a physical, emotional, and spiritual, mental health perspective, you're, you're always better. Can you give us, and we're going to get into the story of sport, but can you give us a kind of overview of the work that you do now, Belinda? So I'm the CEO of Culture's Life, and Culture's Life is an Aboriginal-led not-for-profit organisation that backs Aboriginal-led activity to prevent 
youth suicide, particularly with the um, the fabric of culture and how critical cultural activity is as a protective factor for our young people. And, you know, in working with our young people, if we are ensuring not only do they get social determinants of health, but that they are provided the support and the nurturance and the strengthening or get access to their cultural stories and who they are culturally as a way for them to be in a really strong state of well-being, emotional and spiritual well-being from a non-Aboriginal perspective, the language around mental health and what that means, but from a cultural perspective, how and who you are is a critical piece in feeling purposeful, feeling like we belong and feeling healthy in our well-being. Yeah, mm. so that's some of our program work. But we also, you know, we do know that if we don't support our young people and environments that they are in, they can't thrive. The issues around racism, there's a whole range of issues that unfold. Belinda, your background is both in teaching and in community work, but also in professional sports. So you ran professionally. Mm-hmm. I did sprinting as a, a two and four runner and ran in pro races and had had a lot of fun in some pro races and amateur races. So professional races are, you know, about running and potentially running for money. And for us at the time, unfortunately, women didn't get the same amount of prize money as men. And I'm happy to say that that is changing. In Sydney, I followed a, a passion of mine, which I had done for, you know, many years. I became a heptathlete. I was kind of... A lot who? A heptathlete, yeah. Um, So seven track and field events and it's conducted over two days. I wanted to be a primary school phys ed teacher, um, so I did phys ed science and also did Aboriginal studies. Uh, Once I finished my degree, I I taught for a while, but I was very passionate about talking to young people, not so much about subject matter, about their life and their worlds and went on to do what I'd say is social determinants of health and looked at employment pathways, education and training pathways. As I mentioned at the start, we did this project together on Instagram that involved you taking over my account, and some of the posts that you shared were about a campaign called My Australian Dream. We're coming up to so-called Australia Day on January the 26th. Could you tell us about that campaign, My Australian Dream? Absolutely. Look, the My Australian Dream campaign was a campaign that was connected to the Australian Dream documentary about Adam Goods, one of Australia's very best Australian football league legends. He was an Australian of the Year in 2013, a dual Brownlow medalist, which is the elite medal for the industry, two AFL premierships. And Adam's story, and particularly an experience that had him speak out about racism on the field, then sustained billing while he was playing football. And what it did was really elevate a conversation about racism in the country. Uh, I do encourage Mm -hmm. anybody to, to watch The Australian Dream. And, you know, the campaign itself that was launched last year around January 26 was really to get people to think about why is January 26 an issue? The, the country's national day of celebration and what's the history attached to that? What does it mean mm-hmm. for us? And what message does it say to First Peoples of Australia? And not only First Peoples, what does it say to us as a country around our identity and the relevance of First Australians in that identity? It's a day for me that is a day 
where there is a whole range of emotions that come through. Mm-hmm. And what we wanted to do was particularly provide a platform for Aboriginal young people and key leaders in different spaces to talk to what their Australian dream is. Belinda, roughly what percentage of the Australian population is Indigenous? Between 2 and 3% of the population, and of that population, a really high percentage of, of young people that are under the age of 30. So you talk about, and you and I have talked about this before, the responsibility that rests with non-Indigenous Australians to really take up this conversation. You know, if it's uh, 97% of people in this country, we need to advocate for change in this conversation, right? Completely. And, you know, with our fellow New Zealanders just across the way, when they perform their country's cultural dance in the haka, you cannot decipher who is Indigenous to that land and who is non-Māori, they are so collectively filled with pride and expression on the story of their land that they express as a collective in a united way. And I guess, you know, in my lifetime, I'd love to see that change in this country. If you're listening to this outside of Australia, perhaps you're not aware of the significance of January the 26th, sometimes known as Australia Day, sometimes known as Invasion Day. What's the significance historically of this moment and this day, Belinda? It's the day that was connected to the First Fleet in 1788 arriving into this country and Captain Cook deeming this land terra nullius country. And terra nullius means that it is vacant land. Um, And, you know, to think about how that plays out in the psyche for Aboriginal people across the country, yes, you know, whether it's Invasion Day, Survival Day, a day of mourning, it brings up significant issues. And from that point onwards, regardless of those of us who have mixed heritage, fundamentally our families were viewed as non-peoples and as people that were not sovereign. Clearly we were and, you know, I don't know of an Aboriginal person which would ever say that that sovereignty was ever ceded. It's actually, it's ludicrous to think. Uh, I often fantasise about the thought of imagine if it had played out differently. Imagine if there had have been a welcome to country. You know, imagine if there was the appetite to understand rather than dominate assimilate, destroy, perform genocide over a beautiful people or peoples, I should say, across this country we call Australia. It's, um, yeah, it's a day that, you know, I've over these years, culture's life has is advocated to change and, and revisit January 26, what that might look like. The formal possession of the country at that time says a lot and it needs to be really reconsidered. I want to just pick up on that phrase, terra nullius, and I'm going to read out a quote. It's from Stan Grant's iconic speech that was made in 2015. It's titled, Racism is Destroying the Australian Dream. And Stan Grant made the film with Adam Goods. And he said, the Australian dream is rooted in racism. It is the very foundation of the dream. It is there the birth of the nation. It is there in terra nullius. An empty land, he says, of terra nullius, this horrible idea. A land for the taking. 60,000 years of occupation, a people who made the first seafaring journey in the history of mankind, a people of law, a people of lore, L-O-R-E, a people of music and art and dance and politics, but none of it mattered because our rights were extinguished because we were not here 
according to British law. Yeah, that's right. You know, and the very psyche of that, whether it's Captain Arthur Phillip who arrived here, well, you know, before January 26 and then asserting that action, whether it's those in positions of influence implementing the assimilation policy and impacting Aboriginal families, the power issue and the race issue is the foundation that this country has been birthed on um, from a non-Aboriginal perspective. Obviously, this is an enormous question and one that we can't just answer on a podcast, but how do we get through that trauma and how do we reconcile and heal? And do you want to talk to that through the lens of culture as life and perhaps particularly around the problems facing Indigenous youth today and what you as an organisation do to kind of push forward Indigenous-led solutions? Yeah, for sure. Look, I think what's really important, Claire, on this, you know, we are all responsible for the communities that we live in. We either agree to keep enabling what has happened or continues to happen to be taught in our environments, our education systems, our sports communities, our the fashion industry, wherever it is, our workplaces, we're responsible for providing environments and building communities that are communities that allow us to thrive, allow us to feel valued within. And when you talk about the significance of what has happened historically, in a podcast for me to go through all of those significant policies, all the actions, the genocide, the massacres that occurred around this country, the stolen generation, the impact of that, the end of the story is, is that that comes with generational trauma. And mm. when families have been removed from one another and people are displaced off country, the intention was to destroy a race of people. And, you know, I mentioned it in a chat that I had with um, and you. We spoke about Mundanara on another occasion. But I, in reconnecting with my Polish family, went to Auschwitz and to have a tour guide at Auschwitz talk about genocide on the other side of the world and acknowledge the acts of genocide to Aboriginal peoples here in Australia was a really profound moment for me. That was on a podcast that's called Black Magic Woman. It's hosted by Mundanara Bales. We'll share a link. It's a fantastic episode. But yeah, you talk on that podcast about this journey back to Poland because you also have Polish ancestry as well as being Aboriginal. Yeah, so I think when I look back at that experience in Poland, you know, it reminded me of the absence of that ownership and that responsibility and that truth-telling here in this country and why is it that we do not have education tours connected to our missions and reserves that talks to the issues and the impact of those policies that assimilated our people that removed children. It's important to understand that and there's examples for First Nations people globally like in Canada around the residential schools structures over there. As I mentioned, you're Aboriginal but also have Polish ancestry. You grew up in Ballarat, Victoria. Your father was actually born in a concentration camp in Germany, is that right? And your grandparents came to Australia as refugees. That's right. You know, I, I think back to growing up in, you know, as a child, you, your upbringing is your normal. And having my grandparents not have good English at all, actually, to hear Polish spoken fluently between my father and, and them, um, for us to learn 
you know, the important words like how to say I love you, to say cheeky words <laughs> and to count. <laughs> what are they? Um, oh, <laughs> my God, I love them. No, I won't do that. But I actually, I actually get quite emotional when I think about both of my parents and my family's stories because, you know, when I'm starting to feel a bit sorry for myself, you know, I stand on the shoulder of giants and, you know, I've worked hard to get opportunities that I have, but it's because of those that have gone before me in my family, in the community, and the barriers that they've broken down. My father, to think of him as a little baby being born into that and as refugees being in Germany, in Brunswick, and and then to come down to Italy again in displaced persons camps and then catching a ship to Australia and, you know, then being quarantined. Um, the issues of dislocation, of being away from your homelands and destroying the fabric of families, uh, the cost of that level of discrimination, the cost of genocide on both sides of my family has been really significant. And so their pursuit to keep us together, even with the impact of what that means on how trauma might play out, they will always talk about being ordinary people. And in some ways they were you know, very simple work lives, but constitution of them has inspired me in so many ways and influenced who I am. Your father came from Polish roots and his family came here as refugees, but your mother was also displaced in a different way. Your mother and her sister were raised in an orphanage. My mum at the age of four and my auntie at the age of eight, um, they were placed into an orphanage, taken and placed into an orphanage in Ballarat. My family and particularly my great-grandmother tried consistently to get them back to country. My grandmother wasn't well at the time, but they didn't place them in extended family in the community, as in the Aboriginal community, Watchbullet community up in a place uh, between Horsham and, at the time, Dimboola, uh, a small town in the Western District, nor were they placed with a family on that country. They were put into the Ballarat Orphanage. And my uncle was put into foster care as well. That, that conditioning, however, whether it's very directly removed and rabbit-proof fence is a very powerful story that you witness children being taken physically, wrenched out of hands. And then there's other examples of how a system keeps children away from their families. And, you know, that's the act of a stolen generation. And today we still have our kids out of care. The numbers are in excess of that of the stolen generation. So we are facing some of the most significant systemic issues and where our kids are, where our boys are. So it's, it's massive. I mean, but this was the systematic removal of Aboriginal children from their families and communities. We call it the stolen generation. And, you know, I think that's kind of a dangerous phrase. I always think it sounds quite poetic. This is a brutal, brutal ripping out of the hearts of communities, ripping children out of the hearts of communities with this idea that, I don't know, somehow white Australia could, I don't know what, what are even the words. It's hard to find the words. It's such a shameful story, isn't it? It's hard to talk about it. Look, and again, for people to be more informed about it, you know, when 
the issues of any mixed race children that they would call half caste and the greater that they would see as you know half caste quarter caste they would what their intention was to assimilate them into the broader community so in essence the intention was to destroy a race of people there's this poster of three generations where they have it's a very well-known poster but it's got you know a, a mother her daughter and then the daughter's son and the difference in their visual representation around mixed race and you know that damage of destroying families it's just it's generational and you know to think my mother and others uh, have been impacted by those policies in so many ways. There's not a family in this country in some way, shape or form that's not got a story connected to the stolen generation. It makes that name for your organisation, Culture is Life, stand out as a kind of, it really makes it meaningful, doesn't it? I mean, I'm just, I'm listening to you talk and I'm thinking without culture, you'd unrooted, you've lost everything that makes you whole right but yeah. this idea of using culture as healing and culture as connection to culture as the way forward I think is that's the kind of shining light at the end of it right that's right my auntie uncle and a mother the impact of the policies that kept them away from family when family wanted them back meant that they missed really critical developmental years. Um, and you're dealing with families that were, were beaten, as in by the station owners or, or mission managers, if they practised culture, if they mm. were spoken language. So these sites have been really um, fundamental in the attempt to destroy cultural activities. So how we, one, rekindle, two, practise Three, express our culture because culture, like, it evolves. Uh, some elements are retained in traditional law. Others evolve and the expression can look differently today and that's what I'm, I'm loving seeing happen with our young mm. people and the communities and how they work to continue to express our Aboriginality. We are, we're not pickled. Like the policies of the past would like to have us think, that Aboriginal people uh, no longer exist is an absolutely ludicrous statement. And in fact, it's racist. Of course it is. But I mean, we could talk about a flourishing of culture and a broader recognition among non-Indigenous Australians of the importance of First Nations culture of this land. I think that there is a kind of shift. Do you think so? Can you feel it or am I, am oh, I wrong? Definitely. Look, you know, for what I've witnessed over the year and what I'm inspired by are, uh, are the people that have stood with us, our, our allies that have deeply immersed themselves in the journey and, you know, taking that journey with us. When you've had generations that have taken the knowledge or the exposure to being educated about uh, First Peoples here away. You know, between the reconciliation movement, we've got hundreds of, of organisations committed to actually working to ensuring that there are just and respectful relationships between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal Australia. There's extraordinary things happening across business where people are, are working to back, um, you know, Aboriginal-led business activity and you know, our elders have been tireless in their advocacy. They've been absolutely tireless and stoic and gracious and patient. And to see the work that is happening around treaties 
in this state in Victoria across the country around constitutional reform, when we look at the statement from the heart that was birthed out of Uluru and the opportunities mm-hmm. that exist for this country to be enriched and proud, like unbelievably proud custodians of the oldest living culture in the world, you know, that's what's missing. You shared the name of someone you find inspiration in, Uncle Max Harrison, with me the other day. And I looked him up and I found this YouTube clip where he was talking about connection to land and about the kind of spirit in the rocks and the trees and in nature. I cried my eyes out, but in a good way, because for me, everything that he said encapsulated the real deep answer on how we can relate better to nature and solve our environmental crises. And I just thought, I'm even going to cry talking about it, actually. I'll share it. Everyone needs to watch it. It's an old one. It's from 2009. But it's just, it's like, this is the secret and it's right in front of us. The Hmm. wisdom of, there's something really, really, really incredible about the wisdom that we can all of us learn from First Nations people, right? Talk to us about him and about that connection to land. It's amazing. Oh, look, Uncle Max, what a beautiful human. And, you know, I'm a believer in, our ancestors, and I don't just mean my Aboriginal ancestors, I mean ancestors full stop, that they carry us when we ask to be taken, where we need to be taken. They carry us to places that either heal us, inspire us, or take us forward in our growth. And to cut a long story short, when I joined Culture's Life as the inaugural CEO, uh, the founder, um, David Pryor, who had an experience with an uncle that really made him rethink how non-Aboriginal Australia relate to Aboriginal people and wanted to be supportive in backing Aboriginal-led work because he he felt it, he recognised it, he saw it, he was exposed to it through Uncle Max. And what's beautiful about that story in being critical and inspiring and seeding the organisation's work and the Prior Family Foundation have been the the driving force behind Culture's Life's work. After hearing about this inspiring uncle, to discover so beautifully that he is actually my grandmother's cousin. And is he? I, am, I didn't yeah. realize. Oh. Yeah. Well, we came together when he came down to spend time with David, sat there with Uncle Max, and he started talking about his family in Dimbula. And I said, Uncle, what's your family? And then we both we just started crying. Oh. Um, because yeah, our family made sure that family came back together and his work wow. is extraordinary. He has has led and, and done amazing work with young men and supporting and backing our women up on Newan country in New South Wales but actually really broadening his cultural contribution to mob from a whole range of different communities because he is a man that inspires, that heals, that has wisdom and he often will say niece I just got my spiritual email and I need to tell you this (laughs) he talks about I mean he basically says you're recording this on your recording device but these rocks and these trees are recording me too as they have my ancestors for generations and there's something so powerful in it I just feel it I've got to share it that's amazing I didn't realize you were related love it yeah I want to I want to end up talking about leadership. Congratulations on being awarded the Vincent Fairfax Fellowship this year. It's all about ethical leadership. I wonder if we might end up talking about that, about how we can be ethical leaders, what that looks like, what you've learnt and what what that means. 
Can I just tell you about the process very quickly that I went through? I was encouraged by two different women to apply for this fellowship and women are not good at putting themselves out there right. They kept at me to apply and again and again I was kind of, oh, I'm not sure whether I'm worthy enough. So I do want to acknowledge and particularly the two women Peggy O'Neill is the president of the Richmond Football Club. And you another know, woman. Yes, absolutely. Love it. You know, to another to woman have, in football. <laughs> and then a, a gorgeous woman in cricket in Emma Staples, you know, again in a diversity role, flanking women. Come on, put it in, just see what happens. And lo and behold, um, I was successful. So, you know, day in, day out, my decisions are often about trying to execute and achieve outcomes in two different worlds it's the world it's the western world and culture of what defines success the impatience or the view of of where aboriginal communities function and the approach of you know really challenging mindsets around where problems actually sit versus working with communities and Aboriginal communities in our diversity. You know, we're a diverse people. There's over 300-plus languages across Australia. But the ethical dilemmas that arise for us on a whole range of levels, I know when I have made decisions that are not the right decisions. And I'm human and I've made those mistakes. But I've also made decisions that I know are the right decisions. And what helps me know that they're the right decisions, one is keeping myself accountable, two is being clear on what it is that ensures that it is the right decision. What are the morals behind it? What are the what are the things that measure this as the right action to take? You know, how is it collectively benefiting people, not just individually? Being brave on hard and courageous conversations is probably the biggest growth point for anybody. Mm. Do you think this idea of ethical leadership and ethics in leadership is going to take off more broadly in business? I mean, it's not those two words are not normally the ones that we put together, right? Ethical business or ethical leadership. And yet... Look, I, I mean, you, uh, there is examples of that and has been examples of that for a long time as to whether those people have had the platforms and been the spotlight is another thing. I want to end on, we've already ended on hope, but I want to end on what non-Aboriginal Australians can do to connect with this work and be part of the change and to talk about hope. What education does and I'm speaking as an educator, I'm a trained teacher, but what I've recognised and what I see education do is elevate an awareness and elevate that consciousness, that beautiful cultural intelligence and contribution that First Australians have, we as First Peoples have and hold and contribute to the world, not just Australia, but uh, as the oldest Mm -hmm. living culture in the world. You know, so for people to, one, take that step into being more educated, immerse yourself in experience. Two is finding your own curiosity and, you know, what is it that you might be interested in learning more about and pursue it with curiosity and interest Mm. in a way in which has a connection, an emotional connection. 
you know, the amount of people that would not know what country they live on, as in what traditional land they live on, is unbelievable. It should be a part of people's birth, from birth to death. That experience here on this country should be part of normalised behaviours in today's society. So for those in leadership positions, if you aren't involved in the reconciliation movement, contact Reconciliation Australia. Make sure your organisations, no matter how big or small they are, that you you take that journey. It's it's not a big ask. It's a, it's a consideration of how you do business and really build a meaningful relationship with uh, us as First Australians. But ultimately, the commitment to be lifelong and connected, you know, for us to truly connect as people, we need to be intrigued and interested in understanding one another and, you know, can put your head into it, but without the heart, there's no relationship. So immerse, watch those documentaries, read. There's amazing literature out there by a range of First Nations people. Follow. And um, I'm looking forward to seeing my little girl and my nieces, nephews and communities live a very different life experience. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode and read our magazine over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram, at The Wardrobe Crisis, and I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press. Finally, if you'd like to support us financially, look for Wardrobe Crisis on Patreon. There's also a link in our Instagram. But for what you'd spend on a magazine each month, you can be part of the Wardrobe Crisis patron community and you'll get exclusive podcast content, articles and special access. Because I love you